0: This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Alfalfa is the queen of forages. Although a labor-intensive crop, it produces large quantities of high-protein and high-digestible forage in about three to five-year rotations. Alfalfa doesn't have a general market, but can be a profitable crop sold to a number of niche markets, like dairies, goats, and horses. But also, it fits into many cattle operations as a supplemental winter protein. It can also be used as a soil conservation crop within a traditional rotation on eroded land, or within a deer food plot planting. Alfalfa can be a logical and timely addition to many operations. Generally, fall-planted alfalfa happens around mid-September, and planting in the fall has a variety of benefits. First off, weed pressure is lower in the fall, and young alfalfa does not compete well with weeds. Fall germinating weeds are usually easier to kill with herbicides and don't have the incredible growth and herbicide resistance like some of the summer annuals do. Another advantage is that spring alfalfa doesn't always do well with summer drought. One downside to fall planted alfalfa is that we don't always get the rain needed for a good germination. Alfalfa starts slowly but ideally it needs to have 3-4 to four trifoliate leaves before surviving the winter. It is important to prepare completely before planting alfalfa as it is a nutrient-intensive crop. Although it makes its own nitrogen, it basically mines the potassium phosphorus from the soil. Since neither potassium nor phosphorus are mobile nutrients in the soil profile, adequate soil nutrient levels before planting will increase production and lessen the need for heavy top dressing in later years. However, even alfalfa stands and good soil nutrient backgrounds often do better with the yearly application of at least some p Alfalfa is also very sensitive to pH, more than any other crop. A pH above 6.4 is nearly a requirement before starting an alfalfa field. Take an accurate soil test now so proper amounts of lime and fertilizer can be applied before planting in just a few weeks. Traditionally, alfalfa, like any small seeded crop, needs a firm and smooth seedbed so the small seeds are planted at the right depth. However, it is possible to no-till plant them after row crops, and there could be a window for this after corn harvest. One thing to check for is for the herbicide carryover from the corn is compatible with alfalfa. It is also possible to get a good stand from broadcast seeding followed by a soil packer, but this is somewhat unreliable and can make for an uneven stand. Another planting trick is to plant it with a spring oat nursery crop to keep the soil in place. Alfalfa is not just for field crops either. Alfalfa and clover are commonly interseeded into a pasture to improve forage quality. However, it does make herbicide applications tricky, so only spot spraying can be done after stand establishment. It is best to start off with a clean pasture. When choosing an alfalfa variety, it is important to get the right kind, and is one of the few times I'll suggest spending the money for a good one largely because now there's a lot of variation in varieties, and it is a 4-5 year commitment. Besides glyphosate resistance, which is almost a standard at this point, there is also a number of improvements that have been made more recently, like resistant to aphids and some of the common fungal diseases. Like soybeans, alfalfa follows the number system. In southern Kansas, we use the 4-5 rated varieties. The lower numbers, the 2s and 3s, have a higher winter hardiness, but stay dormant longer in the spring and the fall, reducing the growth season length. If you have any questions about getting your alfalfa started, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, livestock production agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Nobody wants to bale hay that's high in moisture, but there are certain situations each hay season that rushes the grass curing process. In worst case scenario, spontaneous combustion can occur. While spontaneous fires are not terribly common in southeast Kansas, we still deal with low quality hay due to our precipitation levels more often than we'd like. Livestock will devour, even seek out, heat-damaged hay. Heat-damaged hay, commonly known as caramelized, has a sweet-smelling aroma that appears slightly brown. The process, called the maillard reaction, is the reason a perfectly seared steak is irresistible or the browning of baked bread. This same heat treatment that's desirable in our kitchen isn't quite so desirable in the hay field. Caramelized heat-damaged hay undergoes a harmful nutrient transformation in an aerobic environment with moisture as the catalyst. It occurs when the temperature of poorly cured hay reaches 140 to 170 degrees. It's a non-enzymatic reaction and binds the carbohydrates and proteins together. This renders a large portion of the proteins unavailable to livestock. Unfortunately, standard crude protein tests won't reflect the loss in nutritional value it will overestimate the available forage protein. Luckily, we can still get the value of this hay, sorting the damage from the value. Test any hay that's been baled wet for heat damaged protein or acid detergent insoluble crude protein. Some labs will report adjusted crude protein to account for the heat damage. These values will indicate how much unavailable protein content there is due to the Maillard reaction. The same conditions that favor the Maillard reactions are also conducive to mold formation. Though not always toxic, mold can reduce palatability. Horses may be more sensitive to mold than most livestock. For instance, mold spores often contribute to respiratory and digestive problems like colic or hives. Cattle apparently are less affected, but certain types of mold can cause abortions or aspergillosis. Livestock rations need to be adjusted to ensure adequate protein and energy intake. If caramelized hay must be fed, target animal classes with lower nutrient requirements instead of lactating or growing animals. Often, dilution is the solution. The same strategy can be adopted for moldy hay. Although all hay contains some mold, when you can see it or smell it is when it can be a problem. The best course of action is to avoid feeding caramelized or moldy hay to more sensitive animals, like horses or pregnant cows. Mixing undesirable hay with other feedstuffs can dilute problems, but be careful you don't make your animals sick by tricking them into eating bad hay that they would normally not eat. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337.
0: Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's Davin Sronz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report.
2: This is Davin Sronz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, serving Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Have you ever wondered what determines the color of an egg yolk? That's what we will be discussing this week, featuring information from the K-State poultry newsletter. The color you see in an egg yolk comes from the diet of the hen. She does not synthesize any yolk color herself. The color in poultry diets is mostly from yellow corn, a main ingredient in their feed. Other common ingredients with color in hen's feed may be alfalfa meal, corn gluten meal, and distiller's grains. Birds fed diets with barley, wheat, and sorghum lay eggs that have a pale yolk color since these feeds do not have much of the yellow pigment. All yolk color in feed must come from natural sources which may include specialty feed ingredients such as marigold meal, oil, or yellow yeast. If your small flock has access to lush, rapidly growing green vegetation, this will also add a deeper color to your egg yolks. Notice that it must be lush and green because the birds won't normally consume mature and stemmy vegetation. If your birds are running free in a large outdoor pen without any green vegetation, then the birds are not getting yolk color other than from their feed because exercise and outdoor access does not affect yolk pigmentation. Birds kept in the same outdoor pen all year will soon eliminate most vegetation, which is also dormant during the winter, so color intake may vary throughout the year. If your birds are foraging in an outside pen and come across bugs and worms, these bugs and worms that they may find will have no effect on yolk color. Yolk color also does not mean the birds are being fed an organic diet, and the intensity of the yolk color does not mean that the hens are getting more sunlight, and it is not related to what breed the hens are either. It may be a surprise to some people to learn that the yolk color also has about zero effect on the nutritional value of the eggs. However, some eggs with the intensified yolk color will certainly add more lutein and omega-3 fats to your diet if the birds were given specialty diets with these ingredients. Store-bought eggs may have just as intensely colored yolk as the eggs from smaller backyard flocks. Egg freshness is not related to intensity either. However, if you allow an egg to sit in the cooler for many weeks, the freshness will decrease as expected, but the yolk color may actually get darker. This is because the proteins in the yolk are settling out, allowing the pigments to appear darker. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been Adavin Strongs.
0: Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report.
3: With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Wasps can be pretty freaky, especially when flying right at you. However, there's a chance that they will be passive even when large. One species of wasp that is out and about right now is the cicada killer wasp. This wasp, true to its name, hunts cicadas and drags them back to their nests to feed larvae, which gives you an idea of their size. Cicada killer wasps will get to about the size of your thumb, making them one of the largest wasps in this half of the world. Despite their alarming size, they rarely if ever use their stingers on people, and males don't even have stingers. Instead, males will fly towards things they find interesting, making it look like they are charging. This is just an investigative movement, and not an attacking movement. While cicada killer wasps don't attack people, their ground nesting habit can cause problems for lawns. You will see small burrows where these wasps make their nests. Unlike other social insects like yellow jackets, cicada killers are solitary and will not live with other cicada killers, so you don't need to worry about them swarming. However, in high populations, the burrows themselves can be unsightly. To combat this, spray a pyrethroid insecticide around the entrance of the burrow as often as the label allows to repeatedly expose the wasp to the chemical as they enter and leave the burrow, but do this in moderation. While larvae will feed on the bodies of cicadas, adults instead feed on nectar, making this species a pollinator and a pest controller that is worth keeping alive. One other wasp that takes up residence near buildings is the mud dauber, and just like the cicada killer, mud daubers are also very docile. These wasps will use mud to build nests on the sides and roofs of buildings where one female will live. In each nest. Mud daubers are also predator wasps that feast primarily on spiders, including venomous spiders like the Black Widow. Mud daubers can be identified by their very narrow waists between their thorax and abdomen, which makes their abdomen look almost detached when flying. Removing the nests from any structures should be done during the winter when the wasps have vacated their mud huts. There has been some confusion about cicada killers being mistaken for murder hornets that were in the news back in 2020. While they are roughly the same size, the Murder Hornet has not made its way into the Midwest as far as we know, and thank goodness for that. The Murder Hornet, or the Asian Giant Hornet, will have uninterrupted brown and orange stripes on the abdomen. On the other hand, the Eastern Cicada Killer common to our area will have three broken yellow stripes on a black abdomen. If you think you might have a Murder Hornet, give our office a call and we can get the bug identified. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office i can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu once again this has been jesse gilmore bringing you this week's hort report
0: thank you jesse and thank you for listening to k-state research and extensions wildcat district ag team on kggf 690 radio